Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. According to the 2019 U.S. Financial Health Pulse Report, less than 30% of Americans could be considered financially healthy, with millions of households not having enough money and savings to get through a month. These are the people who are at most risk given today's COVID-19 crisis. The longer this crisis continues, the more loan payments will be missed, the more savings will be depleted, and less money will be available for retirement. Protracted and dynamic pandemic conditions will also draw out the anxiety and financial stress impacting relationships and creating underlying psychosocial behaviors. Unfortunately, things will only get worse before they get better. Today's guest on the podcast is Jennifer Tesher, President and CEO of the Financial Health Network, the nation's authority on consumer financial health. Tesher founded the Financial Health Network in 2004. During our interview, Jennifer shares her perspective on what government and the banking industry need to do to support the financial health of all citizens. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. I think both you and I are working in cities that are shut down right now. You're in Chicago and I'm in Cleveland. Yes, I think most of the country is shut down. We're not going to have anything to talk about today, clearly. Yeah. So before we start, can you share a little bit about your journey in financial services? You know, what your background is? Sure. Uh, I'm actually a former journalist. This is about the last thing on earth I would have expected to be doing at this point in my life. But I've always really been more interested in doing stuff than just writing about it. And so I have been for years now, 20 five years, I think, really focused on the financial needs of Americans, particularly those who are most challenged. And I started on that journey back in 1996 when I started working at Shore Bank, which was the nation's first community development bank in the country. And it's been a long journey since then. I created the organization that I now run called the Financial Health Network which was previously known as the Center for Financial Services Innovation. And I would say that over time, my journey in financial services has led me well beyond financial services. And I think this crisis in particular demonstrates just how interconnected people's lives are and various sectors then need to be in order to be responsive to the challenges that people face. So what is the mission of the Financial Health Network? Our mission's pretty straightforward. It's to improve financial health for all. And I emphasize the for all because financial health is relevant and important for everybody. It makes it relatable to everybody. But we're particularly concerned about the people who often get left behind or who are most likely to have challenged financial health. So we want everyone to be able to have the opportunity to improve their financial health and ultimately live their best life. So how exactly do you do that? I mean, what levers do you pull in? What are your options in trying to get your mission accomplished? Yeah, good question. You know, a lot of people initially assume that we're a direct service provider, that we work directly with people, but we don't. We're actually about trying to get the business community to understand why it's in its interest to invest in the financial health of their customers, their employees, and their communities, that it's really critical to their ability to succeed financially and to be in business for the long run in a way that builds trust and helps them build 
you know, franchises built for the long term. So we run a membership network. We have 160 plus companies, largely today financial services companies of varying kinds and sizes. We run a consulting business to work with companies and organizations who want us to roll up our sleeves alongside with them and help design products, experiences to evaluate whether what they're doing is actually making a difference in people's lives. We run an accelerator through our financial solutions lab to invest in early stage fintech companies that are really focused on solving critical consumer financial health challenges. And then underneath all of that is a tremendous amount of consumer research to really understand the true financial lives of people and to make sure that as we are designing products and experiences and policies that we're not getting lost in the averages and annuals, which really mask what's really going on in people's lives, but that we're really diving deep into what's going on for specific uh, groups of Americans. Where do you get your funding? So about half of our money we earn through some of the activities I just mentioned, and the rest we raise from a combination of private and corporate philanthropy. We're about a $20 million organization today, about 70 people in a handful of cities. That's great. So speaking of your research, in 2019, data from the U.S. financial health poll showed that millions of Americans were struggling financially, with 70% of Americans not financially secure. These are obviously the people who are most at risk given today's COVID-19 crisis. But in information that came out today, the unemployment rate skyrocketed to more than 3 million people, mm-hmm. far greater than any previous estimates. And it actually reflects the fact that we're not just talking about low-income or no-income households. We're talking about middle America. Do you think the government is doing enough to protect these at-risk households, not just now, but even before the crisis? Do you think the government is doing enough to recognize that there's a whole segment of consumers, not just at the lower end of the income range, that need help? The short answer is no. I think you're exactly right that this is not just a poor person's problem. In a way, the only constant is the poor. But, you know, the last 20 years, the story has been the middle class and just how little wage gains and growth they've seen, while at the same time, everything in life has gotten more expensive, healthcare, education, housing. So their wages aren't keeping up with the kind of basic needs that they have. And so even since the financial crisis 10 years ago, we've seen consumer borrowing just go right back to where it was before. And that's because people are borrowing to essentially get through the day to day. They're not borrowing to take the vacation or to make some investment in their future. They're borrowing in order to afford their life. And it's not generally speaking because they are living outside of their means. I think your research showed that people here have about $400 in savings for at-risk times. Well, that's maybe a rent payment or a school tuition payment. And sometimes when you talk about people living from paycheck to paycheck, these don't necessarily jive. So you have a situation that there's an immediate shortfall. They either overdraw their account or they have to look for a short-term loan. That's not all these available. So the government just approved or is about to approve funding for some payments to go out. But these are not going to reach households in time to make most consumers next payment, whatever the next payment is or wherever the gap is. And you're going to be requiring every single creditor, ranging from utilities to rent to mortgage companies to credit card companies, 
all to take a bye for a while. And that doesn't just help somebody. It just prolongs the inevitable. And as you said, during this point, a lot of people were taking out a lot more debt. That's right. And what is most concerning to me is the potentially very vicious negative downward cycle, because as people are unable to pay their light bill or their rent, there are businesses and companies and people on the other side of those transactions who are then themselves challenged financially by that lack of payment. And certainly big, giant companies, utility companies, et cetera, hopefully can absorb some of that better than a household can. But when you're thinking about the broader national economy, that kind of negative downward spiral is what can drive a country into not just a little downturn, but a very severe recession and ultimately potentially a depression. So I'm really heartened by what I'm seeing coming out of Congress. It took them long enough, didn't it? Um, And I'm not even sure if the House has yet approved today yet or not. But what the bill is looking like feels like there's a good balance between giving some direct support to individuals while at the same time giving some support to companies in exchange for those companies doing the right thing by their customers and employees, like keeping them employed, even if there's no work to be done because they're closed, as an example. So I'm hopeful that the stimulus package, the aid package, will help. But this is just the very beginning, unfortunately. Um, And, you know, we'll have to see what things look like three or four months from now. Well, that's exactly right, because the realities are that the impact of this lockdown, if it goes on for two or three months, is that a large percentage of small businesses that employ, I'm going to call them middle income households, may not reopen. And so the problem doesn't go away. It just prolongs it, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, and that's you're also starting to see that issue come up in the conversations around how to support small businesses. And, you know, the one thing I can't stress enough is whether it's for a business or for an individual, credit is not the answer here, because that's just digging a deeper hole for later that folks aren't going to be able to make up. And I think that's particularly true for small businesses. I like this idea that I've been hearing about small businesses being able to take a loan, but a loan that can be forgiven if they keep their employees on the payroll. That, again, sets the right kind of standard. But whatever we can be doing to give companies a few months here of runway, the more likely that more of them will be able to reopen when things, I I, I can't say are going to return to normal, but when there's more of an ability for people to move around and actually conduct business. So moving from government to the banking industry overall, how do you think the banking industry should be responding or could be responding regarding the upcoming payments due, the savings at risk or the retirement funds at risk, or even the need for short-term funds? Again, not just with the result of what's going on exactly now, but what we had going on before. If it's only three weeks ago, what the rule was like three weeks ago, how can the banking industry come to the game just a little bit more prepared? Yeah, I got to say, I've been really heartened by what I'm seeing, certainly relative to where we were 10 years ago in the financial crisis. Now, this isn't a financial crisis. This is a public health crisis and a financial health crisis for individuals. But I do think that the actions that I'm seeing banks take to give their borrowers relief, to allow them to skip some payments, 
as an example. What I'm seeing come out of Washington and from different banks around, particularly for mortgage holders, but also for anyone who's got loans from banks, I think is the right thing. I've seen banks saying they're waiving fees, they're waiving payments that are due. I actually just saw come out of, I think it's the New York Banking Commissioner's Office saying that banks cannot charge overdraft during this time, at least in that jurisdiction. A lot of banks are coming to that of their own accord. And I think I'm also pleased I've seen really the right signals from regulators giving banks the comfort that they need that taking those actions isn't going to put them at risk from a regulatory perspective. We've recently seen the regulators encourage banks to engage in more small dollar lending, particularly during this time when people are in a cash flow crunch. I think the next big thing that the banks need to prepare themselves for are all of the payments that are about to start flowing from the federal government. It's still not clear how those payments are going to be made. Is the government simply going to cut everyone a check who qualifies, or are they going to use data from people's tax returns to send some of it electronically via direct deposit? But regardless of which disbursement mechanism the government uses, they're about to be inundated uh, with people who are desperately trying to convert those checks to cash at a time when a lot of branches are closed or have way fewer staff. And I think banks are really going to need to be willing to cash those government checks for anybody, regardless of whether they're customers or non-customers for free. The fact is the risk on these checks is zero. Maybe there will be a small bit of fraud risk, but I think in this instance, we can't be worried about that. We've really got to give as much access as possible to help people get this money into their hands in a spendable form as quickly as possible. It's interesting because one of the things I was worried about is that you keep on thinking about the people that fall through the cracks. So, okay, it's one thing if you're working at an organization like companies that go out and maybe lay off some people because they thought it might be easier to get unemployment insurance if they weren't employed and then hire them back. Mm -hmm. and, and people went about this in different ways. But if you're talking about gig workers, I was worried about anyone from the hairdresser to the person that comes and cleans houses to the person who cuts lawns, whatever it may be. Yep. They don't have the organizational structure there. There's a single person. But it looks like Congress did look at gig workers as a segment and are trying to find a way to make that happen. But it's definitely difficult. And it's interesting because when you look at middle income group, and a lot of your work is dealing with not only with middle income households, but lower income groups. But when you're talking about middle income people, these are people who have more credit obligations. So how do you deal with these households that have come back online, back into the marketplace at different time periods? So you have one person who may say, okay, I can make a payment the next month because I'm going to be coming online maybe by Easter. That's a bad example, but we'll use it anyway. But if it's two or three months, this person may not have financial stability back for, let's say, five months. That's going to be pretty difficult to have all these different come back in the marketplace timings and the impact not only on them, but also on the banking industry. It is, I think, the triaging and the um, being able to deal with customers as individuals is going to be the most challenging part because so far what institutions have done rightly is to create some broad policies right we're waiving all fees for example or we're you know but as it comes to what would normally be considered collections or workouts that's got to be at an individual level the last time 
the sector had to gear up for that was during the mortgage meltdown. Um, and frankly, they didn't do such a good job. And there were a lot of um, organizations outside of the banks, a lot of nonprofits and credit counseling agencies and the like, that were the ones who had to be really be on the front lines of working directly with people. This isn't the mortgage crisis. There are no external servicers. Banks are really going to have to gear up for the kind of customer service that they've been largely trying to push to digital channels, right? And self-service help. A lot of these issues are not going to be self-service. What's interesting also, there's going to be bad news stories coming out of this. Organizations that weren't really responsive or something happens out of the ordinary. But do you see COVID-19 as being the stimulus for us to understand more about our overall financial inclusion? Do you think that this might bring a greater awareness and maybe organizations, financial institutions may look at things differently in evaluating customers as opposed to simply looking at a credit bureau? So we tend to say similar things during every crisis, right? So certainly intellectually, I would tell you, absolutely, like never waste a good crisis. This is going to expose us to things that we haven't thought of before. It's going to show us the importance. But you know, then life goes on and people forget again. So I'm certainly going to do my darndest to make sure that these issues aren't lost on people when we get past this immediate crisis. But boy, past experience doesn't really, <laughs> doesn't really give me a lot of hope. I mean, let's be real. This is decades worth of challenge that middle America has been facing. And particularly in the last, say, five years, there's been tremendous amount of data and studies and stories and pundits talking about all of these challenges, and yet nothing has changed. Very little has changed. So I also think that now to, I'll try to be more positive, Jim. I do think that the federal government's one story, and so many of these issues that people are facing are really structural, and they deserve a policy solution. They demand a policy solution. But I do think that in the financial services industry in particular, banks and other fintechs have started to gain a much better appreciation for the real financial needs of their customers and technology and the move to digital and the role that data plays in our lives and the availability of it has really, I think, put those institutions in a great position to be more thoughtful about both how they can play a role in improving the financial health of their customers and how doing so is actually useful and better for their ultimate business outcomes. Boy, that's interesting. I visited China in early January and visited multiple financial institutions and fintech organizations. And a lot of them were using unstructured or non-traditional data as a way to evaluate the financial worthiness of consumers. One organization I visited was WeLab. It actually uses mobile data to be able to evaluate a person's ability to pay and the risk involved. They use everything from where a phone is located to the way a customer uses their phone for payments, even facial recognition technology that allows WeLab to give more credit and allows more services to be available to a broader spectrum of consumers. And you hope, if it's not the banking industry, then maybe the fintech marketplace or the, the big tech firms will be able to look at consumers using the data they have beyond the traditional credit bureau to be able to look at people, not just from the standpoint of how do we turn them down, but how do we include them? Yeah, we have spent the last several years developing a measurement methodology around financial health. 
And we're now working with dozens of firms that are using that framework and methodology to actually measure the financial health of their customers. And they're able to do that year on year, or frankly, on any frequency they want, to really see how financial health changes over time and how different products or services or policies might impact financial health. And in fact, um, we're in the process of building out a B2B tech platform that will really create an end-to-end experience for institutions who are looking to embed this kind of data analysis into how they do business. And I've been thinking a lot about the moment we're in right now, and it reminds me very much of the financial crisis. You know, 10, 12 years ago, that was when we were really starting to see firms come online saying, hey, let's bring more data that's not FICO into the underwriting decision. And at the time, most bankers would say, well, if it's not FICO, it must not be true, right? It's a FICO or bust. And the crisis demonstrated that um, particularly when people's finances went haywire, FICO wasn't working at all to separate goods from bads in terms of managing one's portfolio in a downturn. And that's when non-traditional credit data really took hold because that data turned out to be much more useful in separating goods from bads in that environment. And so I'm actually thinking that this financial health data may experience a similar kind of trend where it turns out to be particularly useful as firms are now going through their portfolios and figuring out which borrowers are um, really going to make it after a few months of a blip and which ones are not. So most households do not manage their money very well, at least in my perspective, and it's not totally dependent on education or income level. How can financial institutions do a better job in partnering with households to help them save more money, reduce the cost of debt, invest more thoughtfully, or avoid financial surprises? So I think I'm going to quibble with you a little bit, only because I actually think that a lot of people, it may look from the outside like they're poor money managers, but they're actually making the best decisions given their circumstances and the choices they have available to them at the time. So, and I actually think that people who have less money are better money managers in most cases because they have to make it last longer. They have to be able to do more with less. But regardless of that, I agree with you that there is a significant role for providers to play in helping people be their best selves. And I say it that way because most of the behaviors that we think equate with good financial management are hard for everybody, as you said, regardless of education, regardless of income. Like we all know it's important to save. Everyone gets that. But saving is hard. Now, sometimes it's hard because like you really don't have any excess to put aside. But a lot of the times it's really because of our own mindsets. Like it's much harder for us to think in the long term than it is to think in the short term. And so I think we've learned a lot from the field of behavioral economics about the way in which people's brains work. And I think there's a lot we can do in how we structure products, experiences to help people be the self they want to be. Even if their brain is more likely to be telling them one thing, creating an app that crawls through your checking account and finds small amounts of money that you would never notice was not there and put it into savings for you 
we've seen that created and we've seen it work. So I think there's huge opportunities there. So beyond the banking and government organizations, what opportunity do you see being provided by fintech organizations and big tech organizations as it relates to financial wellness? Yeah, I don't necessarily think there's much difference between what they can do and what the banks can and should do. I think sometimes they need to do it in partnership with each other. When I think about what the fintechs, where the advantage is, is A, they can focus in a bit more narrowly, either on a particular segment of customers or on a particular challenge that they might face. And they also have the opportunity to then get people's attention in marketing that product or experience, whereas a bank may offer all of the same feature functionality but it's impossible to tell people to market or even to tell them when they open an account, here are the 30 things you can do. Um, It's just too much information to take in. So sometimes I think that for the banks in particular, there's a lot they can learn from what the fintechs are doing and then adapt it. Um, And then I think the other thing is that I think about with particularly with big tech is just the data, what you were talking about earlier How can we really start to use data to give people real-time information they need to make better decisions? I'm more cautious about thinking about how we use people's data exhaust to underwrite them. It almost feels a little unfair. I'm more interested in saying, how can we take all the data we have about people and use it to help them optimize their own decision-making? Like, for instance... When you've got sources of income from multiple places coming in at different times of the month and for different amounts, which is essentially what a gig worker's life looks like, figuring out when and how to pay which bills and in what order is actually a math problem. It's complicated. Computers with sufficient data can tell people how to do that best and then still give the person agency to say, yes, I click this button. Yes, do it that way. I think those kinds of solutions are where there's immense opportunity. You know, I think what may be interesting in this whole crisis is it's going to get people thinking. I think that they may double down, organizations may double down in innovation, double down on partnering with fintech organizations to solve some of these problems. But I think that those organizations that have showed that they can reach out taking this terrible situation and really make it better for the consumer, that those organizations that show empathy are really going to benefit, I I think, more than ever. When things were all going well smoothly, you you maybe didn't have to do that. But now the things are challenging, not just for the consumer, but for the organization, the banks themselves. I think we're going to see some rethinking of how we can help people to be better financial stewards. You know, I love that. And at the end of the day, I often say, to banks in particular, like you may think you're in the banking business, but you're actually in the financial health business. Like that's what your customers want from you to know that you have their back as they're trying to manage their lives. And, you know, people's lives and their financial lives are one and the same, deeply interconnected. And if that's not how you see yourself in terms of the business you're in, then you're not really speaking to your customer. So I couldn't agree more with you. I think it's a real opportunity. Well, and I think also we have a situation that there's going to be a lot of consumers that have time in their hands because they're basically unemployed. 
but they're going to be able to search out those solutions that are most empathetic, that are most consumer focused, that are doing banking for good as opposed to just for profit. And I think that Highlight is going to really differentiate organizations that have the consumer in mind as opposed to simply saying they're in business for a better financial customer experience. I think the opportunity is great. I, I agree. So finally, on a completely different subject, you are obviously and always have been a strong representative for the financial services industry, but more importantly, a female that plays that role. Mm. And I personally believe there are far too few females that get recognized for their efforts or in the position to get recognized for their efforts in banking and fintech. We see that when we're looking for establishing conferences and trying to set up speakers, there, there's just not many females out there that, that have a great amount of exposure. There's definitely a lot that have a great amount of intelligence and ability to share, but it really hasn't worked that well in banking. What needs to be done to change that in this industry? I think the first thing I would say is we could say that about most industries. I would say it's pronounced in banking and finance, to be sure. I like to say that, you know, a couple of years ago when we had that whole new spate of women elected to Congress, and we were all clapping and cheering that, you know, I think it was now 25% of Congress or at least of the House was made up of women. Well, the last time I checked, we made up about half of the population of the United States. Boy, not at all reflective of the population at all. Yeah, right. So, you know, again, great that we're making strides, but this is a universal problem. I think it's got to start all the way back in college and in banking education right? That from the beginning, we are making sure that women are seeing opportunities for careers in finance and banking at the senior levels, and that we're starting from the beginning so that, you know, we're at least even starting with equal pools of people to begin with. I've seen banks start to get more comfortable with flexible work, whether that's location, hours, et cetera. I think that's actually going to be a real silver lining of this crisis is the demonstration that a lot of stuff can be done from home or at differing hours. I think that really plays to women's favor and should help knock down some of the barriers that keep women from continuing to rise in the ranks. And then I just think it's sheer force of will. I mean, the fact that we have so few women on all corporate boards, but particularly in financial services, that just needs to change. And it can tomorrow. There are more than enough qualified women who can serve on corporate boards and corporate bank boards. We just have to have the will to actually make the changes. At the end of the day, you know, you see a lot of institutions now talking about closing the pay gap. I've been really impressed with, for instance, by City. Corbett's been really focused on this. He has spoken publicly about it. They publish their numbers every year and the numbers aren't so good. And then they go and try to close the pay gap. Again, that's fixable. We just have to want to do it. And so I don't think there's any magic silver bullet. I think we do have to continue to fill the C-suite and our boardrooms with more women. So really, greater effort has to come from both sides. The organizations have to want to be more inclusive of females and other minorities. And in many cases, these same people have to go out and go for it themselves. I think there's sometimes complacency on both sides for different reasons. But you, but you know, Jennifer, 
Thank you so much for being on the show. Obviously, a very timely topic and a very timely in our overall economic situation. As I've said in previous shows, the, the interview that I've structured isn't exactly the interview that we've done because of the current events. But I think in this case, it really applies going forward as well, that we can't just forget that this is a storm that might pass because the reality is the storm clouds will still be there long after the crisis. I thank you so much for being on the show today. Jim, thank you. And thanks for all the incredible work that you do. Really appreciate it. So looking back in today's show, boy, oh boy, what a timely topic and what a great guest. You know, Jennifer shared the fact that the Financial Health Network is out there to help the consumer in many different ways. They're working with a number of different organizations to make the opportunities known to the consumer, but also work with organizations to make more opportunities available for the consumer in managing their finances. But I think as we look upon this, we, we really have to realize that the banking transformed aspect of this is that organizations have got to work on behalf of the consumers in ways that underlie all their products and the way they deliver them to the consumer. They need to really say, how can we help the consumer save money, reduce debt, reduce their overall financial costs, and most importantly, make them aware of surprises that may not be in their favor. How can we warn them with the data we have and make it more inclusive? How can we include more people and make finances and financing more available to more, but also more awareness as to how to do it better? Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed, rated the top five banking podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And most importantly, please don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. While it only takes a minute, these ratings are very important as we try to expand the distribution of Banking Transformed to more potential listeners. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.